Welcome to Monday Morning Murder in the News with Alyssa Carroll. Good morning, heathens, and happy Murder in the News Monday that I've been releasing every single Monday morning because the rest of the regular news is just, say it with me, hot, scary, garbage, and you know you'd rather be hearing me and my bullshit anyway. So I collected news articles along with articles sent to me by you, my beloveds, and others. So thank you for submitting. Unlike my regular podcast that I write out in its entirety before I record, and you're welcome for that because, oh, the mess it would be, this is unscripted, and I don't read the articles past the headline so you and I can react together. So let's go. So our first article comes from TrueCrimeDaily.com, and the title reads, Truck Driver Accused of Killing Two Women Over 20 Years Ago in Kansas City. Kansas City, Kansas. That's that side, not my Missouri side. So police have revealed new developments in several cold cases, including the arrest of one man who allegedly killed two women in the 90s. On Wednesday, September 20th, Kansas City, Kansas, Police Chief Carl Oakman and Wyandotte County District Attorney Mark Dupree spoke at a press conference and announced 52-year-old Gary Dion Davis was taken into custody on two counts of second-degree murder for the deaths of Christina King and Pearl Davis. His bond is set at $500,000. According to Dupree, on November 22, 1966, Pearl Davis was found dead at a residence on Lafayette Avenue in Wyandotte County. The autopsy revealed she died by homicide, and officials sent evidence from the scene to the Kansas Bureau of Investigation for Processing. Just over two years later, on December 25, 1998, police discovered King's body behind an abandoned building. King's autopsy report also determined she was killed. So advocacy group Justice for Wyandotte said King, who went by the name Cricket because she was so tiny, had been beaten to death. Pearl Davis, who was also known as Samema Musawir, was fatally stabbed. WDAF-TV reports King's daughter was 10 years old when she was killed and King was 26. Pearl Davis was 43 and a Vietnam veteran. Dupree said cold case detectives reopened Davis and King's investigations and found DNA evidence from both scenes that matched Gary Davis. If convicted, he faces up to life in prison. Officials are looking into whether Davis, who was a truck driver at the time of the killings, is connected to any other cold cases in the Kansas City area or in the United States. During the press conference, Police Chief Oakman spoke about two other cold cases from over 20 years ago. On July 22, 1997, 16-year-old Dion Estelle was found shot to death in a creek bed, but police could not identify any viable leads. Then, a break in Estelle's case came when an inmate at the Lansing Correctional Facility contacted Kansas City Police and said his fellow inmate, Leon Caldwell, admitted to killing the teen. Police interviewed Caldwell, and he initially said he knew who killed Estelle, but he did not want to reveal the person's name. Oakman said Caldwell came forward again and admitted to killing Estelle. He supposedly provided details, quote, only the killer would know. 
So Caldwell is in hospice care now and told Oakman he wanted Estelle's family to know the truth before he died. The fourth cold case Oakman discussed referred to the discovery of a newborn found in an apartment complex dumpster on November 16, 1976. I, I cannot. Oakman said the little girl was born alive and still had her umbilical cord attached. She was placed in cloths and bags and then left in the garbage. According to Oakman, investigators learned a teen was visiting the apartment complex around the same time, but then left soon after. Officials tracked down the child's mother, who is now in her 60s. The woman admitted she gave birth to the child, and her DNA matched the evidence found on the newborn. The woman told Oakman her grandmother, quote, took the baby and walked off. That was the last time the mother saw her child. Oakman identified the grandmother as the suspect in the newborn's death, but said the grandmother died. The child's mother was not arrested because investigators did not find any probable cause. Oakman added, quote, she also was a victim. Police chief, the police chief shared, quote, we have a lot of unsolved cold cases. And side note in Kansas City, you bet your ass. It may not be today. It may not be tomorrow. In fact, it may not even be this year, but there's going to be a time. You may be in the drive through line. You may be at the grocery store. We're going to eventually get you. End quote. So our next article comes from TrueCrimeDaily.com, and the title reads, New Sketch Seeks to Identify Last Known Victim of, quote, Candyman Serial Killer from 50 Years Ago. Coming out of Houston, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children released a new sketch this week of one of the victims of a serial killer known as the Candyman in the hope of positively identifying him. Wait a second. Are they talking about Dean Coral? Are they talking about Dean Coral? He was the Candyman. Uh, the victim, who became known as John Doe 1973, was found deceased August 9, 1973, in Houston, but officials said he had most likely been dead for at least a year. The victim was a white male, quote, possibly with Hispanic admixture, end quote, with long brown hair. He was wearing striped Catalina swim trunks and a khaki shirt with a red, white, and blue peace symbol on the back with USA underneath it. The victim also had dark blue corduroy pants, a leather ankle bracelet, and brown leather cowboy boots. His estimated age is between 15 and 18 years old. Now, according to the NCMEC, the victim had spinal bifida, which could have affected the way that he walked. John Doe, 1973, remains the last unidentified victim of the serial killer, yep, Dean Arnold Coral, who was known as the Candyman. What I say? what I say. Coral kidnapped and killed almost 30 young men in Houston between 1970 and 1973, and these victims were known as the Lost Boys. Coral reportedly got the moniker because he worked at his mother's candy company and handed out free candy to boys in the neighborhood. And then it goes into the story, and I don't want to get into all of that, because I've done a podcast on Dean Coral, but that's a pretty interesting story. It's disturbing, guys. It's disturbing. But it's an interesting story. So if you've not listened to that one, then go back and give that one a listen. But anyway, so still finding victims. And that dude's been dead a long time. That's messed up. Okay, so our next article comes from APNews.com. The title reads, Iowa man disappears on the day a jury finds him guilty of killing his wife. 
How did he disappear? Shouldn't he have been in the jail? Ottumwa, Iowa. Police were searching for an Iowa man who failed to show up at his first-degree murder trial on Friday, the day a jury found him guilty of killing his wife. A judge issued an arrest warrant for Gregory Showalter Sr. of Ottumwa after he missed the reading of the jury verdict, according to their newspaper. I'm so confused. Side note, so confused. He was found guilty. He didn't show up to his first-degree murder trial. Why was he not in the jail? A judge, where I said that, Showalter, 63, had been out on bail since August 2021 when a judge allowed him to post 10% of his $250,000 bond as long as he attended court hearings and wore a GPS monitor. He had been charged with first-degree murder and other offenses in the strangulation death of his wife, 60-year-old Helen Showalter. Prosecutors argued that Showalter killed his wife on July 31, 2021, and then dumped her body along the Des Moines River near Ottumwa. Her body was found floating in the river the next morning. So jurors reached a verdict just after 1 p.m. Friday, and Showalter's lawyer said he called his client and told him to come to the county courthouse. When Showalter didn't arrive, surprise, surprise, his attorney contacted the judge as well as officers who checked his home. While police searched for him, the judge ordered that the verdict be read, citing Iowa court rules in cases where a person on trial is voluntarily absent. The jury found Showalter guilty of first-degree murder, abuse of a corpse, willful injury causing serious injury, and domestic abuse assault by strangulation or impeding blood circulation. The judge also canceled Showalter's bond, you think. Ottumwa Police Lieutenant Jason Bell said when police went to Showalter's home, they found a woman outside who said she was his friend. She said Showalter had given her the keys to his vehicle, quote, and made a comment about not needing those keys anymore, end quote. She thought he was going to walk to the courthouse and didn't know where he had gone. I call bullshit. Police tried to locate him by finding his cell phone, but a phone carrier said it had been turned off about 1.30 p.m. on Friday. After the hearing, Bell said police determined Showalter had cut off his GPS monitor. The judge set a sentencing hearing for October 16th in Iowa. First-degree murder carries a mandatory term of life in prison without the possibility of parole. That's the end of the article. You know, I could have guessed that he was just going to bounce. Anyone else? Anyone else? Yeah, he wasn't going back for that. He knew. Why was he not in jail? Our next article comes from today.com. The title reads, Parents, aunt, arrested after baby nearly dies from more than 50 rat bites. This one's just going to piss me off. Uh, according to court documents, a child had bites on his face, leg, and hands. Okay, so two parents and an aunt are facing charges in Evansville, Indiana, after a baby in their care was found bloodied and covered in bites from rats. According to court documents obtained by NBC affiliate WFIE and viewed by Today.com, the six-month-old boy was found face down in his bassinet the morning of September 13, 2023, with wounds all over his face and body. The probable cause affidavits for the father, David, and mother, Angel, said the boy had more than 50 bites to his forehead, right cheek, and nose. He also had several bites on his right leg and foot. What? On the baby's left hand, there was a large wound 
on the top of his ring finger that exposed uh, the bone. On his right hand, there were bites starting from his elbow down to his hand. All four of the child's fingers and thumb on his right hand were missing flesh from the top, exposing the fingertip bones, according to the documents. With the index and pinky fingers, the most severely injured and missing flesh halfway down each finger. I'm a puke. Quote, according to the hospital records, the child suffered a near-fatal event, the probable cause documents state. David told police that he'd found the boy that morning covered in blood and called 911. He told investigators that the home had a rodent problem and that the house had been treated professionally for it several times. I call bullshit on that as well. He also produced service records showing the home had been treated several times starting in the spring of 2023 and then several months. So I guess I have to retract my bullshit. David said he lived in the home with his wife, Angel, and their three children, Delania, Angel's sister, and her two children also live in the home. So David and Angel had checked herself no, David said Angel, his wife, had checked herself into a mental health facility on September 10th. She was released on September 13th, a day, a day early, due to the incident with her son, a police said in court documents. The affidavit showed two of the children had told a teacher earlier this month that their toes had been bitten by mice while they slept, and the Department of Child Safety had visited the home a few days later. Police said Thurman told the DCS worker that the marks on the child's toes were scratches from the bed frame. Uh, so the parents of the male child also had two previous interactions with DCS. In December, DCS uh, substantiated a claim of neglect on David and Angel in regard to their middle child being injured due to lack of supervision. Later in June of 2023, DCS substantiated a claim of physical abuse for the same child, a three-year-old, against David. DCS declined to comment on the cases. The home was regularly checked on by social workers who documented that it was cluttered, had trash sitting out, had animal feces on the floors, had dirt, dishes piled up, and had foul odors emitting from the kitchen, according to one of the documents. However, caseworkers did indicate the state of the home was, quote, slowly improving. The last social worker walkthrough of the home prior to the incident with the baby was earlier this month, on September 9th, 2023. All three adults living in the home are facing felony charges as a result of the incident. It was not immediately clear if either of the parents or the aunt had legal representation. So are they going to have to uh, amputate those fingers that have no flesh on them down to the bone? They have proof that they had the home treated for pests, and yet there's rats literally eating an infant alive. I don't even, we're moving on. The next article comes from People.com. Title reads, Woman Sentenced for Murdering Stepdaughter three years old because girl was conceived from husband's affair. Bella Seacrest, Seacrest three died in June, 2020 due to starvation and neglect. And then this one has a content warning. This article contains disturbing de depictions, descriptions of child abuse. So a Pennsylvania woman has been sentenced to life in prison for killing her stepdaughter because the child was born out of an affair her husband had with another woman. 
Bella, three, died in June of 2020 due to starvation and neglect, police said. Her stepmother, Laura, 31, was found guilty of criminal homicide in July, just two months after the girl's father, Jose, was found guilty of third-degree murder in May, according to WPXI. He was sentenced to up to 66 years in August. So WPXI reported in June that investigators determined that the stepmother and the father subjected the girl to starvation, torture, and physical abuse. Authorities said that the stepmother was the prime abuser. Quote, she had bruises on her face, the child's mother, Nicole, told WTAE following the girl's death. She had a broken nose, bruises on her body, burnt cigarette marks on her body, sores on her feet, sores on her back, and she had bruises in her pelvis area. End quote. Eileen, who babysat Bella, testified in court in June against the stepmother and the father, said Bella, quote, had lots of love in her, end quote. I'm grateful, and I thank the Lord that I was the one who was able to give her the love, change her diapers, and to feed her, and to put her hair up in little ponytails that no one else was doing, she said. So the stepmother's sister, Alexis, is also facing a slew of charges in this case, including homicide, child endangerment, and false imprisonment. Her charge of, quote, unlawful restraint was dismissed. She is scheduled to go to trial in January. Justin, who is an attorney listed for the sister in court records, did not immediately respond to people's request for comment. That's the end of the article. What I don't understand is that I can understand that you're upset at your husband for having an affair. You know, forgive him or leave him. Why would you punish, let alone murder, but in any way, shape, or form have a negative, uh, have negative reactions toward the child that had nothing to do with this, the absolute innocent child that had nothing to do with this? I don't understand people. Our next article comes from InsideEdition.com. Title reads, A store cleaning lady died on the job and her decomposed body went unnoticed for four days. Now her family is suing. So Chris Hart, the attorney for the family, tells Inside Edition Digital that they hope to use any money they receive in this lawsuit to establish a scholarship for low-income girls who attend trade school. The family of a South Carolina woman whose body went unnoticed by department store staff for four days after she passed away on the job is suing her employer. Bessie Durham worked as an independent contractor to provide cleaning services for Belk, a department store in Columbia, according to a lawsuit filed by her husband Franklin that is seeking punitive damages from Belk. The lawsuit says that Bessie had been cleaning the store on September 15th 2022, when she, quote, died while inside Belk's restroom. So the Lexington County Coroner's Office determined Bessie died of natural causes and stated in their report that her body appeared to have been decomposing for four days inside the bathroom. It was not until September 19th that staff reviewed security footage and realized that Durnham had entered but never left the bathroom four days prior, says the lawsuit. By that time... Bessie's body, quote, experienced severe skin slippage, blisters, leathering of the fingertips, and severe facial swelling, end quote, 
says the lawsuit. In addition, a large amount of purge and body fluids had pooled from the body onto Belk's restroom floor. The lawsuit says that the family was not permitted to identify Bessie's body and that the stench of the decomposing body meant that the family could not prepare a proper funeral and burial. Bessie's family spoke about their loss after filing their lawsuit. Quote, we couldn't even view the body. We didn't have any last moments. We couldn't see her smile. We couldn't see how beautiful she was, said her oldest daughter. She was a loving mother, grandmother, great-grandmother, friend, and wife. We're all just wanting ownership to be taken, said Bessie's daughter. Chris Hart, the attorney for the family, tells Inside Edition Digital that they hope to use any money they receive in this lawsuit to establish a scholarship for low-income girls to attend trade school. Belk did not respond to a request for comment about the lawsuit. I'm curious as to why nobody thought about using, nobody needed to use the restroom in that store. Even if it was an employee bathroom, one would think someone would stumble across it before four days. My goodness. Our next article comes from TMZ.com. And again, I don't really know. I know that TMZ used to be a questionable source at best. Is it better now? I'm not sure. But it's the uh, title that got me. And it says, Alligator Hell. 14-foot reptile chows down on human torso, freaks out Florida neighborhood. You think? A real-life monster tale unfolded in Florida Friday after a 14-foot alligator was found with a dead body in its mouth. Florida Fridays. There's an idea. Maybe I should do that. The super scary incident occurred yesterday afternoon in the city of Largo, where the hungry reptile was slithering around the neighborhood, freaking out residents. One local was on his way to a job interview when he spotted the creature biting down on what appeared to be a portion of a mannequin. But then Jamarcus Bullard got a better look, believing it could be a human torso in the jaws of the alligator. Bullard told Fox 13 News he reported the grizzly find to the fire department, which quickly responded and confirmed it was a human part. Pinellas County Sheriff's deputies said additional remains from an unidentified adult were found nearby. No one else was injured. The alligator was humanely killed. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, you know what they say about animals that get the taste for human flesh, right? So he had to be put down, but... I mean, I think I would probably be upset, too, if I saw an alligator wandering around with an, I don't know, human torso in its mouth. So our next article comes from CBSNews.com, and the title reads, Florida teen allegedly kills mother, attempts to shoot older brother in front of deputies. Another story out of Florida, Hillsborough County. A Florida teenager is facing charges after he allegedly shot and killed his mother and wounded her boyfriend. Police say the incident happened at a home in Riverview, a neighborhood about 16 miles east of Tampa. Officials say a 14-year-old boy shot and killed his mother and shot her boyfriend five times. Police say the boy attempted to shoot his older brother when deputies arrived. After 16 minutes of negotiations and the use of a 40-millimeter launcher projectile, a less lethal form of gaining compliance. Hillsborough County Chef, Chef, no, the sheriff, says the teen was taken into custody. 
The mother's boyfriend was taken to Tampa General and is listed in critical condition and is sedated. The older brother was not hurt. I'm clicking the read more and it's not letting me read more. But something tells me if he shot the boyfriend five times and shot the mother maybe once that perhaps the issue was with the boyfriend. That's my guess. I'm sticking with it. Our next article comes from Fox4KC.com. And the title reads, Potential Witness in Missouri Kidnapping Case Found Dead in Barrel. This is a case that I meant to pay a lot more attention to, and it sort of fell off my radar, but me being from Missouri and considering Missouri is apparently a, a hotbed of nonsense these days, I'm surprised that it that I kind of forgot about it, but I did. I'm just I'm just being honest. So Excelsior Springs, Missouri. Excelsior Springs police have released new information after a potential witness in a local kidnapping case was found dead. Officials said kayakers found a blue barrel on an island in the Missouri River in Saline County on June 24th. Those blue barrels, you know, Dahmer, am I right? So Excelsior Springs Police Chief Greg Dahl said the kayakers opened the barrel to find Janie Crosdale's remains in, quote, advanced decomposition. Excelsior Springs Police previously identified Crosdale as a potential witness in the case against Timothy Hazlitt Jr. Now, if you guys remember, I think I did talk about this, but Hazlitt was arrested and charged in October of 2022 after someone called Excelsior Springs Police. The caller reported an unidentified woman was going door to door screaming for help. When police officers located the woman, she told police Hazlitt kidnapped and sexually assaulted her. Court documents, I think she showed up with like a dog collar around her neck or something. So court documents say she told investigators she escaped when Hazlitt left home to take his child to school. At the time, the woman said there were other victims, but police never found anyone else in the home. After Hazlitt's arrest, police started searching for Crosdale, saying she might have information that could help them in their investigation. Dull said police believe Hazlitt had contact with Crosdale before he was arrested. Now, details about Crosdale's cause of death or when she died have not been released. Dull wouldn't comment on whether the barrel Crosdale was found in was similar to the barrels found on Hazlitt's property in Excelsior Springs. When asked about evidence linking Hazlitt to Crosdale's death, Dull said DNA evidence takes time to examine. Well, we know that. Quote, we're trying to investigate any connections there might be, Dull said. However, after Crosdale's body was identified, Clay County prosecutors filed a motion to increase Hazlitt's bond on his exiting case. Uh, A spokesperson for the prosecutor's office said they requested the bond increase because of new details in the case that create a greater concern for the community's safety if Hazlitt were released. Prosecutors presented evidence that Crosdale was inside Hazlitt's home before he was arrested. However, a judge ruled that Hazlitt's $3 million bond was sufficient and will stay in place. Quote, I think $3 million is an excessive bond for any case. He's a public defender client, Hazlitt's attorney, Tiffany Winningham said. I think she's not taking that seriously enough. There's no way he's ever going to post $3 million in cash. The Clay County Prosecutor's Office said prosecutors will accompany the Missouri State Highway Patrol on Tuesday as they continue to search the Missouri River for more evidence. 
Crosdale's family believed she wasn't just a witness, but a victim. In a statement to Fox 4, her family said, We are deeply saddened at this horrific news. We are, however, relieved that we finally get to have a proper burial for her. She was truly loved and will be missed. End quote. And for now, Dull said Excelsior Springs have no leads on other potential victims and no other known missing person cases are tied to Hazlitt's. The police chief would not speculate on whether or not police believe Hazlitt has ever allegedly done this before. Dull said he only knew of a few other calls for service at Hazlitt's address. Two were welfare checks. One of those came from Hazlitt's employer, Dull said, and the other was from a family member. Both were concerned when they hadn't heard from Hazlitt. Hazlitt remains in custody in the Johnson County, Missouri jail on a $3 million bond. His next court hearing is set for October 9th, so that's coming right up. I mean, why else would she... So he has barrels on his property that match the barrel that woman was in, and that woman was a potential witness or victim. Well, witness, I guess. And she was in his house before he was technically arrested? I'd say he probably did it. I'm going to throw a legend in there. And then for our last article, I think we'll go for something that isn't a joke, but it's kind of funny. It's not funny. It comes from Live5News.com, and the title reads, Jack in the Box employee shot at customer over curly fries, lawsuit says. Because curly fries are something to get violent about. Coming out of Houston, a lawsuit in Texas claims a Jack in the Box employee shot at a customer all because of curly fries. Then there's a comma and no rest of the sentence. The shooting happened in 2021, but the attorney for the family just released a video of the incident. The employee involved already served her sentence, but the family wants the restaurant to be held accountable. In the video, employee Alania Ford seems to be agitated with customer Anthony Ramos. Ramos is in the driver's seat. His pregnant wife is in the passenger seat with their six-year-old daughter in the back, according to the lawsuit. They paid $12.99 for a combo, but did not get the curly fries they ordered. Sounds pretty standard for drive through window, am I right? So during the dispute over the missing fries, the video shows Ford ready a gun. Minutes later, and with another employee, she throws ice and condiments through the window before firing at least twice at the family. Ford was initially charged with aggravated assault with a deadly weapon, but pleaded guilty to a lesser charge of deadly conduct and got one year deferred adjudication and completed it in June, according to court documents. The family from Florida, the family from Florida, filed the lawsuit after the guilty plea, claiming Jack in the Box was negligent for not keeping customers safe from potentially dangerous employees. In its original answer, Jack in the Box denied all allegations, writing that they have no control over or legal responsibilities for a third party like Ford. Ford is also named in the lawsuit, which seeks at least $250,000 in damages. I mean, she shot at two adults and, a, and one of them was pregnant and a small child. It's a miracle that anyone didn't get seriously hurt, but still she, she should be in jail. And with that, my loves, my loves, that's going to do it for Monday Morning Murder in the News. Uh, happy October. I'm recording this Sunday night, so it's the 1st of October. Happy spooky season. 
We're going to get started with October Halloween Extravaganza podcast this month. I'm super excited. Uh, I still have a few things in the works, um, which I will announce as they come about. And I guess that's about it. So another weekend just came and went, just flew by. No apology, apparently, you know, didn't even throw money on the nightstand. And the people that had to work, well, you know, they were already screwed. And now here we are affronted with another Monday. It's ridiculous, right? But we got to do it. Got bills to pay. Got people or animals to feed and so on. So we'll get through this. We're in this together, okay? And I got the regular nine to five that makes me insane. So I'm, I'm there with you. Um, but we'll make it. Have a great week, guys. Um, DM me on Instagram at serial underscore killing. Come join the fan page Serial Killing, a podcast on Facebook. And I don't know, come chit chat. All right, love you guys. Bye.